This is an Alexandrian Media podcast. Hello. Welcome. 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 Let me show you to your seat. Front row center. center. Medea, in all the versions before Euripides, she didn't kill the children. So Euripides comes along and he makes her kill the children. And it's very sympathetic to Medea. This woman had a psychosis after every childbirth. Her husband was determined that he wanted a large family. He kept getting her pregnant, and then at one point, she killed him. I think what's interesting about Kirubini is the quite peculiar trajectory of his career, but also that he was kind of a person that was not particularly social, even though Kirubini was considered the most important composer of the time. Collis, of course, we associate with the expression she gave to, to words, but she maintained the vocal prowess that allowed her to execute what Carabini was asking for. And you can hear the development. Now that we've been shown to our seats, hello and welcome to this inaugural episode of the monthly podcast opera magazine, Front Row Center. Hi, this is your host, Mike Bolton, and thank you so much for joining me. Have you ever sat Front Row Center? Well, I've done it twice. Once for Lena Riesnick's Farewell at Queen of Spades, which was an incredible experience. I splurged. It was an extravagance. It's not a place I normally sit because I'm usually further back and higher up. But literally sitting behind the conductor, it gave me a very different perspective on the performance, clearly. Noticed more details, heard different colors, saw how the artists engaged with each other more deeply in the performance, had a better sense of the stage and pit balance. It was definitely a unique perspective on an opera and a performer that I cherished. Well, with Front Row Center, we hope to give you that kind of deeper, more colorful experience on operas that you may love or maybe you're just getting to know. We'll explore topics related to an opera in conversation with artists, composers, musicologists, experts, and more as we enjoy the view from Front Row Center. Season one, episode one, Front Row Center. Thanks again for being with us. And we start this podcast with Luigi Cherubini's most well-known, yet not so frequently performed opera, Medea. The story could easily have been taken from the news. A betrayed woman kills her children in an act of revenge. In fact, actually just a few weeks ago, September 12th, 2022, a woman was charged with drowning her children off of Coney Island. But that's not the only layer to peel back as we explore this work in the next 60 minutes or so. First, to reignite our knowledge of Greek mythology, we'll talk to classics professor Dr. Grace Ledbetter from Swarthmore College about Medea in antiquity and Euripides. Then we'll sit down with psychiatrist Dr. Lard Duval, who worked in a women's prison for 16 years. She'll share some insight into the women who commit filicide, their sad situations which often lead to tragedy, and negotiating the complexities of prison life. Then from Milan, musicologist Dr. Carlo Lanfossi dusts off stories about Luigi Carobini and a unique look at the ever-changing score to the opera. And finally, noted opera critic and lecturer David Shengold talks about Maria Callas, the singer who single-handedly rescued this opera from obscurity and against whom all other singers are judged in the title role. I'll be honest, the ancient Greek tragedy is something I generally don't engage with, but only through operas or topics with characters like Orpheus and Electra and the Trojan War and Ariadne and others, like maybe some of our other listeners. But then there's Medea. She's no stranger to the opera stage, thanks to Luigi Cattobini, 
Marc-Antoine Charpentier, Giovanni Pacini, and so many others. And then there's Euripides. She fascinates us with her monstrous acts that unfortunately still have resonance today. But how was Medea received in ancient Greek times? I'm really thrilled to be joined by Professor Grace Ledbetter, Professor of Classics and Philosophy and Director of the Honors Program at Swarthmore College. How are you? Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. So <laughs> maybe, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the mythology behind Medea and, and where that story kind of comes from. Medea is a very important figure in Greek mythology. The story of Medea existed before Euripides, but Euripides is our most famous source for the story. But I'll tell you, the first thing is that in all the versions before Euripides, she didn't kill the children. So in the earlier versions, the children died, but they either died accidentally or they were killed by someone else. So Euripides comes along, he makes his version of it, and that's what they did. They all told their different versions of the story, and he makes her kill the children. So... This is a very shocking thing for Greeks at that time, but it's not what you think. Uh, Euripides' play is very sympathetic to Medea, and it's very hard for us to understand that. Um, What is sympathetic about her? Um, She is not viewed as a monster. In the subsequent versions, even in antiquity, she is viewed as as a monster. But In Euripides, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of kind of conflict and and ambiguity about how we should view her because he depicts her to a Greek audience as incredibly sympathetic, which I know sounds crazy, right? Right, I mean, like, why would we be sympathetic to a woman like this? But if you understand the context, you will understand why this is actually a tragedy. I mean, if you just have a monster who kills her children, that's not a tragedy. Right, 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 right. No, that's just a melodrama. But a tragedy is something that seems inevitable and sort of fortuitous and unavoidable. And there's something that is tragic about it, right? (laughs) It's not just... Someone did something very, very bad. That's not tragic. It's it's clear. So what's tragic about it is that it's not clear. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how is it not clear? Well, so here's the thing. Medea is a very special person in Greek mythology. She is from a very distant age. She's from an age of the heroes um, where uh, the heroes are defined as people who are very closely related to the gods. So they have divine parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. It it all, uh, it varies. So Medea is very closely related to the divine. In fact, she's so closely related that she is considered a divinity herself. So her grandfather is Helios, the son. She's mortal, she will die, but she's got special powers. And the other people in her age, her husband and all the other people there, um, a little bit less closely related to divinity. So 
the, the way the Greeks thought about this, I mean, they thought about this mythological age as a time that really happened, right. that was their past, and they're descended from this. So Medea has many divine characteristics um, that are different from the contemporary Greek audience, right? So her, she is extremely proud. She's very mm -hmm. temperamental. Um, she cannot be dishonored. Her honor is the most important thing. What happens is that she marries Jason, who is also from that age, but he doesn't have any special powers. <laughs> uh, she helps him a lot. She helps him um, in many, many ways. And then he abandons her for a very convenient marriage that will give him more royal status. He expects that she will just go away and she doesn't. She doesn't go away because she's been wronged by this man. She's been put in a very difficult situation by him. She is a kind of typical woman in that society who's not treated very well. And even more so given her status as a foreigner, in Euripides, he changes it and he, he has her killing the, the children. And that's very shocking. However, in the context of who she is and her elevated status as a divinity or near divinity, it actually makes sense. Okay. Because divinities care more about their honor than mm -hmm. anything else. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Medea says, Oh, I can't do this. I can't kill my children. Oh, of course I can. I'll be laughed at by my enemies if I don't kill them. That actually makes sense. And in the play in Euripides, all the people except her husband and except Creon understand she's been done wrong. She's been treated horribly. And this is not a great solution. And they try to keep her from it, but they understand so what's, I guess, shocking from our perspective is that in the Euripides version, there's a lot of sympathy for her. And so the, the tragedy is that we can actually understand why she might do this horrible right. Right, thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah. This all makes sense. You know, I'm hearing themes that all opera, opera lovers will understand. You know, Chocho-san and yeah. Madame Butterfly. Absolutely. A little bit of Brunhilde and Siegfried, even though yeah. by that point, Brunhilde is no longer a goddess. But then this idea of the stranger, then I think about themes of xenophobia and our contemporary society. And it just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of complexity and things that are just make this story open up into layers that need to be discovered to really get a broader understanding of what this piece is and how Medea being a stranger here society just doesn't trust her I mean yes she's a goddess but then that's another reason not to trust her because gods do whatever they want to do well know? so in a Euripides's play the only person who calls her a foreigner and calls her the other is Jason oh is that no, an insult no yes but no one else does. Um, the chorus in Euripides are Greek women and they accept her and they're sympathetic with her. They treat her like a Greek woman because she is a Greek wife. 
you know, but it's only the people who don't like her. It's only the people against her, Jason and Creon, who say you're a foreigner, you're this, you're that. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the Greeks had the stereotype of foreigners as threatening, as violent, as all of the things you might think of. Uh, And so, but no one else, no one views her that way except Jason, you know, and Creon. um, And it's in their interest to view her that way. And, And yet Jason is the one who violates his oath of marriage, which is probably religiously the worst thing you can do. So an oath is protected by Zeus, the most important God. And if you violate your oath, you're in big trouble. That's what Jason has done. So who's doing wrong, the foreigner or the Greek? You know, Euripides is very interested in exposing these contradictions. Uh, Greeks might think of these foreigners as bad, but look at what they do. Look what Jason does. And Medea is also extremely clever and logical and just argue circles around Jason when they talk to each other. And he comes off very, very weak. He says, oh, I only care about uh, giving our children a better future. Well, his children have been exiled. So what's the better future he's giving his children? So having Medea be this very strong woman, how does that play with Greek society? You know, what were women's roles at the time? And what would have been what, how would such a powerful character and such a smart character have been received by society at the time. Well, you, you could tell that from the way the chorus in Euripides okay. reacts to Medea. The chorus in Euripides are just conventional Greek women, and she's treated like a conventional Greek woman, and they're very sympathetic to her. And in Euripides, she talks about the plight of women. You have to get married. There's no choice. You can't get divorced or you'll be disgraced. You have to be subjected to your husband. He's going to go off and do whatever he wants if he gets bored. So you just have to do this. And she says this very famous line that in the beginning of the play, she says, I would rather fight on the front lines three times than give birth once. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and the and the chorus of women say we understand. We understand how hard it is to be a woman, to be a wife in this society. We get it. And you have been treated terribly. You have been treated terribly. She's been abandoned and she has no civil rights because she's not a Greek. Mm -hmm. So she's been, everything's been taken away from her. Mm -hmm. And yet Jason says to her, oh, you'll be fine. It's your fault. It's your fault for, you know, getting angry at Creon and this, that, and the other what is she supposed to do, you know? And the fact is that she is a much more powerful person um, than Jason is. Mm -hmm. And yet Mm -hmm. she's being treated like, like she's not. In Euripides, I mean, she is rescued at the end. She's rescued by her grandfather, who is Helios, the son, a son god. And then she's taken in by the king of Athens. And she is of Athens, a Greek. She's not a Greek, but the king of Athens, the most prominent Greek, is taking her in. So she's protected. She's protected because of her power. And also with him taking her in, it also is another way of demonstrating that sympathy for her. Absolutely. Because here we have the king of Athens 
the king of Athens bringing her in. Exactly. And so it shows her prestige. I mean, she is protected on a much higher level. It doesn't matter what Jason and these people right. do. She's got the sun protecting her. She's got the king of Athens respecting her. Why? She's very divine. She's very powerful. Um, I think that the Greek women in the audience would think not what we might imagine <laughs> at all. Amazing. Amazing. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your passion for this topic with us. It's really been wonderfully enlightening. Thank you so much. It's really a treat for me to be able to talk about these things it's a little bit outside of my um, usual studies and classics, but I love talking about this stuff. Oh, so I, thank you so much. I have to say thank you. We're, we're recording this, what, the second week of September. So this is a very busy time for you as a college professor. <laughs> so yeah. thank you so much for actually making time for this as well. You're so welcome. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Dr. Grace Ledbetter, Professor of Classics and Philosophy and Director of the Honors Program at Swarthmore College. For those of you who are New York City opera fans, well, Professor Ledbetter comes from good operatic stock. Her father is William Ledbetter, who was a frequent and wonderful performer both at City Opera and with many companies around the country. Well, still coming up, we have interviews with Dr. Carlo Lanfossi and David Shengold. Up next, though, we have Dr. Lar Doval to talk about women who commit filicide on Front Row Center. You're listening to Front Row Center, and this is your host, Mike Bolton. Thanks again for being with us. As I mentioned in the intro, 30-year-old Erin Murdy was in the news just recently for killing her three children on Coney Island. She drowned them in the ocean. She'd been in a long-running custody battle and was facing eviction from her home at the time of the killings. You might even recall such infamous cases as Andrea Yates, who, while dealing with severe postpartum depression, drowned her five children in her bathtub in 2001. Or Susan Smith, who strapped her boys into her car and drove it straight into a lake in 1994. Well, who are these women, and what causes them to reject their maternal instincts to commit filicide? Well, I spoke with psychiatrist Dr. Lar Duval via Zoom, to discuss her time working at a women's correctional facility and the women who kill their children for Front Row Center. Dr. Duval, thanks so much for joining me on our podcast today and thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. What drew you to psychiatry and how did you get involved in working with the penal system? Well, it was just a long winding path. I started out in anthropology and then got my undergraduate degree at Antioch in anthropology and philosophy. And the other thing that attracted me was family practice. So I came back home to Bucks County and talked to some family practitioners I'd grown up with. And they all said, going to psychiatry, half of our practice is psychiatric problems and we don't know how to handle them. I found working with psychotic patients was kind of like interpreting poetry. It was fascinating mm -hmm. to me. So I practiced geriatric psychiatry for a while. I found a job at prison. So that's mm -hmm. what I did. I worked at a women's prison for 16 years. Yeah. What was it like working in that environment in a prison? The anthropology came in helpful because there were groups of people who were 
all thrown together, the inmates, guards, the civilian, uh, the wardens and people like that. And then we had a psychiatric staff that had sort of been imposed on them uh, by a lawsuit. And none of them were happy to have us there, but except the inmates, they were happy to have us there. Um, so there were all these sort of groups competing for our attention and negotiating with each other because they all had to share the same space. It was very interesting. Group dynamics. Of the women that you were working with, what was sort of the range of crimes that they were imprisoned for? Anything that got them a sentence over a year. And that ranged from drug offenses to multiple murders. And they were all together in the same place, which was another interesting thing to watch, how these groups all kind of negotiated with each other. Right, 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 right. right. And I, I'm sure that made for an absolutely fascinating interdynamic. It especially did. If, you're, if, you, if you have... There were all different racial groups, all different <laughs> socioeconomic backgrounds. An interesting thing, and this got back again to the anthropology, is that in women's prisons, and that women tend to make up pseudo-families. They have identify aunts and mothers and sisters, and they group together to protect each other, to help each other, to get extra stuff for each other. Uh, they're not actually related at all. This is a, a prison family only. When you were in the prison system, were you working with many women who had killed children or killed their own children? Not many women, but there was a small group of them, uh, and they were not easy to identify. They tended to isolate. They were anathema to everybody else, from the staff down to the other prisoners. They got called baby killers. They got sort of verbally abused and sometimes physically abused. And even some people who killed multiple adults considered themselves to be better than these baby killers. Yeah, so yeah, they yeah. tended to just keep to themselves. And they generally don't come from criminal backgrounds. They have no other history. They don't think like criminals. They don't act like criminals. Uh, so they really were kind of odd girl out, if you will. We think of women having these incredible maternal instincts and they're supposed to protect yeah. their children. And here we have these women who for whatever reason, that instinct is stopped for a, if a moment. Yeah, for a moment, these, because these once that moment is over, they feel awful. Most of them never forgive themselves. They feel guilty the rest of their lives. They kind of become complicit in their own isolation and abuse because they sort of think they deserve it. It's, it's very interesting. Most criminals are convinced that it's not their fault. It's somebody else's fault. You know, these women are not like that. Most of them were psychotic when they committed the crime. Uh, in most cases, a postpartum psychosis, where there is a tremendous hurt surge of hormones after the delivery of a baby. In some women, it precipitates psychosis. And in that group of women, a subset, end up killing their children for a variety of reasons. It's, it's, there's no one reason, but there quite often there's stress in the family, financial stress, spouse abuse. Uh, there are lots of stressors that can sometimes tip somebody over the edge. There was one woman who came home from church one day, and again, in the context of having all kinds of family problems and uh, relationship problems, financial problems, and having to take care of, I think, two children all by herself. 
she drowned them both in the bathtub while she was right. bathing them. Somewhere in the process, she just decided to hold their heads under, and that was that. A common delusion is that you're saving the kids or protecting them from something, uh, and to that extent, you're being a good mother. Beyond medication, how do you help these women cope with these this guilt and this grief while they were in prison? Well, that was very difficult. I, re I initially was seeing them individually. Okay. And when I began to realize how isolated they were, I was talking with a social worker that I worked with who was seeing many of the same patients. And she said, can we put them in a group uh, so they can at least talk to each other because they're never going to talk to anybody else. They, they are not about to open up about these crimes. And it sounded like a good idea. So we put them in a group. There were about eight of them, I guess, in that, at that time. And for for a while, it seemed to help. They were opening up. They were talking to each other. They seemed to have a great sense of relief of being not called out. And then very subtly, but very surely and very steadily, they began to grade themselves on which of them was the worst. In their, and so we had to stop the group. There was no point in encouraging that. Because what happened when they started to grade each other? Well, then they were back to why they were in the group in the first place, because they were beginning to isolate each other again and push people, you know, emotionally, at least out of the group. So abusing each other emotionally. So they can never, ever escape no. this trauma. No. And they, as I say, most of them feel tremendously guilty about it. Uh, mourn. There was one woman who planted a, a memory garden to the two boys that she'd killed. Uh, again, she was not quite that typical. She had killed two toddlers. She had been horribly abused as a child herself. And she wanted very much to have children and had them and got adopted. In fact, these these were two brothers that she adopted from some, some other country. And everything was fine until they hit the age at which she had been abused and the kinds of behaviors for which she had been abused, the acting out. And the, the no, you know, the, when you get to the negativity stage where a kid stamps his foot and says, no, I won't. And she, she just lost it. She essentially beat them both to death. So they're ostracized from each other. They're from each ostracized other. from the community within the prison. Yeah. Is there, I'm assuming for most of these women, there's no connection to the outside world. I'm, I'm guessing. Now the family's family, pretty much abandoned them, right? So they have no one. No, they're really very horribly isolated. It, it's, it's such a moment in one's life that is based upon external influences, your past history, what's well, happening. internal remotely. to the extent that it's chemical. Internally, control right. It. So is there any silver lining to any of this? Well, I'm hoping that as more and more research occurs, there is more and more understanding and more compassionate sentencing. One of the problems, I suppose, is that women cannot afford good legal counsel, and I suspect most lawyers would shy away from ruining their reputations by defending them, so it becomes a very difficult situation to get out of. So with, with a character like Medea, here we have this woman who's killing her, her children out of revenge. Were there many or any situations where we have women purely basing it on revenge that you've worked with? This woman had become pregnant with a man that she was in a relationship with, but not married to. 
And somewhere during the pregnancy, he went off with another woman. And so she was left alone to carry this pregnancy for a man who no longer cared about her and was kind of abusive when she tried to, you know, make approaches to him. She delivered the baby, killed the baby, and then went and sat with it on his doorstep. Somewhere in her fantasy world, she was hoping that this would impress him with how much she needed him and loved him. And, you know, it's hard to get inside a delusional system, but that was what she recalled when she came out of it. Yeah, I come back to this idea of like, there's, there's no silver lining to any of this. You know, and, and, and we can think about the, the horror of the crime. We can, we can be compassionate towards these women that do this, but their lives are over. They're, they're just yes. done. Uh, no idea how they're going to support themselves. They have no family contacts because families renounce them. Uh, so they're really, again, going to be totally on their own out there in a world they don't understand. So as someone is watching this opera or preparing for this opera, Really, they should be thinking in the back of their heads that this is not just purely vengeance, but it's just a psychotic element to this. And ex extreme um, emotional stress. I mean, Medea has lost her sorceress status. She's killed right. her brother. She's killed her father, as I remember it, mm -hmm. abandoned by her homeland. She leaves homeland with Jason. And then he abandons her. Why? So that he, he says so that he can give her a better life by marrying a princess and having his, his excuse for why he leaves her is really kind of amazing. Uh, why he expects her to buy this is a wonder, but uh, yeah, she's lost it all. I'm trying to find something to end on a positive note, but I don't know if there is anything. <laughs> well, it's produced a lot of good literature and a wonderful opera. Yes, it <laughs> has. It yes, it so has. It does puzzle people and they can't leave it alone. They keep coming back to wondering, you know, what's behind it? What happens? What happens? And they don't live happily ever after. No, nobody lives happily ever. And again, at the at the opera, everyone is horrified. Yeah. Well, Laura, I help, thank you so much for participating in the conversation today. <laughs> and I really appreciate your insights. Dr. Laura Duval has over 37 years experience in the medical and mental health arenas. She received her BA in philosophy and anthropology at Antioch, continued her medical studies at University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University Physicians and Surgeons, is board certified in psychiatry and neurology with added qualification in geriatric psychiatry and a private practice and worked in various hospital practices and the penal system until her retirement. Mike Bolton here, and thank you for listening to this inaugural podcast of Front Row Center. Thank you for listening. David Shengold will join us momentarily to talk about Maria Callas and Medea. But up next, we have Dr. Carlo Lanfossi to share information about Cherubini and the opera Medea. Luigi Cherubini's French opera comique Medea premiered in 1797, just a few years after Mozart's death. At the Théâtre Fédo, a Parisian theater company founded by King Louis XVIII, Carubini had visited France in 1785 and ultimately stayed there. And yes, I did say opera comique, a musical form with spoken dialogue in between the musical moments. The opera wasn't a huge success when it premiered, but three years after that French premiere, it was performed in Berlin with the full libretto, including the dialogue, translated into German. Then a second German translation took place in 1802, and then in 1809, a shortened version of that second translation happens. 
And then composer Franz Lachner used that shortened 1809 translation and set the spoken dialogue to music in recitative style in 1865. Some 40 years after that, La Scala takes the Lachner version, translates it into Italian for their 1909 production of Medea, and that 1909 version is now the standard version of the score and the one used by Maria Callas. If it seems a little confusing, maybe it is, but let's join our conversation with Dr. Carlo Lanfossi to learn more about Cherubini and Medea. Well, I am so incredibly happy to be joined by Carlo Lanfossi. He is a research fellow at the University of Milan in Italy. I've known Carlo for a couple of years when he was getting his PhD in musicology at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, his research focuses on opera historiography at the intersection of psychoanalysis and performance studies. Currently, he's working on a digital project co-financed by the European Union on the libretto collection at the Archivo Storico Ricordi in Milan. He's written on topics such as ghosting in Baroque opera, the operatic pasticcio as listening inscription, the soundscape of 19th century Milan, and the history of Italian musicology. He's also an active music journalist for Radio Popolare and as a dramaturg. Carlo, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a pleasure um, speaking from Milan. Uh, oh, yeah. So it's uh, what, one o'clock in Philadelphia and what, seven? It, it's 7 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. So these uh, long distance phone calls are always fun. We should talk about Carabini. Yes. So here's this fellow who he really comes right in the bridge between the classical era, the romantic era. And if you look at his biography, it's you know, I tried to find a bio of Carabini on Amazon. There's nothing in English, right? Yes, <laughs> but, and barely in Italian. Yeah, and the one thing I could find are various editions in various languages of his treatise on counterpoint and fugue. Mm -hmm. So clearly, he's significant from a music theory standpoint. But you know, he's in he's in Italy. He's writing operas. He goes to France. He finds a little niche for himself in French court, is a successful composer. But there's only one piece that we really know him from, and that's Medea. And that's thanks to Maria Callas, otherwise we probably also would have forgotten about Medea too. Um, I think what's interesting about Cherubini is the quite peculiar trajectory of his career. What was peculiar about him was not also is basically like being... Um, self-exiled from Italy most of his life, but also that he was kind of a person that was not particularly social. And that, seriously, that actually prevented him from becoming engaged in several different venues, opera houses, but also like he prevented him the friendship with Napoleon, which was crucial at the time. And I believe that also contributed to basically his disappearance from the music history books, even though we should say that Cherubini was considered at, during his time the most important musician composer of the time. Cherubini represented Italian opera going beyond itself. Italian opera trying to do something else. He was mostly remembered for opera comique or tragedie lyrique, basically plays with spoken dialogues and music. Mete was something like that originally. Um, and that was what struck people because it was actually really innovative. I mean, not only Medea, Lodoiska, all the operas that he wrote during those crucial 
10 last year of the 18th century uh, were really uh, dramaturgically quite interesting, quite innovative. And then something happened. He himself basically retired from theater in general. He retired from the, also the idea of being innovative. And he turned to symphonic music, which is the reason why he was considered the most important musician of the time. Beethoven adored him. Beethoven adored the, you know, the overture to my day. Um, and then, you know, people like Wagner and Brahms considered Cherubini influential for their career. So Cherubini was even more influential for the trajectory of symphonic music in, you know, in Germany or like German countries than Italy, where he basically was forgotten up until the 1950s. So it's interesting you say that um, he's, he's wonderfully influential from an orchestral and a symphonic standpoint. You very pointedly said his operas were very strong dramaturgically. You didn't mention that they were strong musically. So, well... It's true that um, both at the time and still today, there are clearly, we can see Cherubini struggling with some of the, especially some of the most typically Italian way of doing opera, meaning the melody. And at the time, if you're an Italian and you're not particularly good at, you know, long elaborated melodies, I mean, Belcanto was still not there, but basically it was in the air. And Cherubini was just not like that. He was, again, an extremely like you know serious morally invested person who believed that he need to do things right and especially for tragedies he need to do things like the french way so small melodies short but mostly you know the color of the orchestra the the pathos that you can have on stage and of course that was extremely appreciated in paris and in countries that did not have a strong tradition of italian opera such as germany but obviously that would not fly in italy and it it never, it never had. Looking at the work historically, it comes six years after the Magic Flute and yes. La Clemenza di Tito. It is, what, seven or eight years before the premiere of Leonora, Beethoven's original version of Fidelio. So you get a sense of like the other things that are happening musically. And then there's this, this sort of odd piece that's kind of stuck in the middle with Medea, which of course, as you mentioned, starts as an opera comique with spoken dialogue, ends up yes. with these various bastardized versions in German and, you know, with sung recitatives and the German one translated into Italian. And we don't, we don't really get a sense of what the real Medea was. And we, and I don't know when we'll, because like we have a couple of yeah. recordings and we know right. that like the French, the supposedly original version um, has been performed recently, but in general, Cherubini's you know, masterpiece is still Medea, the, the Italian version, where really Cherubini's contribution is, I would say, two-thirds of the music, and one-third is Franz Lackner, who was the person who in 1854 wrote the very long and actually quite good recitatives in German at the time, and then they were translated into Italian. And, but it's a lot of music that was not written by Cherubini, because of course for Cherubini, the idea was that music was supposed to like to emerge from, from the play. Like the Théâtre de Feydou was a stage for, for, you know, for that kind of plays inspired by Racine, by that kind of generation of dramaturgical plays that, uh, in which music had a, had, a, had a big role, but it was kind of like one aspect of a more general theatrical experience. And if you listen to Medea in the French version, 
the part that struck even the most, like in, in Italian, which are, you know, the concertati or the finale, which is in, incredibly uh, engaging, in the French version is even more because like everything emerges from nothing, from, from, again, from spoken dialogues, but you can focus on, you know, delivering your character. And the music just sounds right. There's something about Medea in Italian that when you listen to it, sounds a bit wrong. Um, and you can never tell really what it is. And it's the fact that the recitatives are clearly just opposed 60 years after the opera was actually written. And the opera was written, it was written in 1792, so basically just a year after the Magic Flute. And it's interesting to see the trajectory that that kind of operatic genre had. One year it's Mozart and a, singspiel, a comic singspiel. Then it's, you know, Cherubini with an opera comique. And then it's Beethoven with Fidelio, who is basically an opera au sabotage which was a, also an interesting genre, which Cherubini contributed to because his Lodoiska, which is his other masterpiece, was deeply influential for the development of that kind of genre and Fidelio too. So he was in a way, you know, imbued with that kind of musical culture that was going on between France and German speaking countries, certainly not in Italy. And so of course, like the idea was that in order to like revive him, he needed to be adjusted. What fascinates me is that the record score, for example, for Medea never mentioned that the recitatives are not by Cherubini. Maria Callas was generally convinced that she was singing Cherubini's recitatives. She would give interviews saying, oh, you know, Cherubini is all about recitatives. And, you know, those were not really written by Cherubini. And the record score for a long time never even mentioned that those were not by Cherubini, but by Lachner. Um, it was, you know, it's interesting, it's fascinating, it's part of like operatic tradition works, um, and it's why I love it, but but you, all of these layers at some point needs to be disentangled because, not only because I'm a musicologist and, you know, it's part of my job to tell the truth and, you know, being the annoying guy, but but it's, 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 it's what it's fun about it. That's to, fascinating. Like, we discover. Are, as you're talking about this, I'm also wondering, when we think about the opera, and again, most of us will never really get a sense of what this true original piece was. Um, two of the biggest exponents of the the title roles, uh, well, the title role and Jason, yes. of course, we Callus, and we'll talk about Callus a little bit later with another guest, but also John Vickers. You know, these two very heroic, very dramatic voices that that kind of singing just wasn't around in 1797. <laughs> No, for sure. Kalia's brilliance was, of course, that she understood that the, 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 in general, the part was written for someone who was firstly an actress and then a singer. Not only because, of course, Opera Comique had long spoken dialogues where, where you need you know, to have a, an actorial sense of the stage, um, but also because the part in general is written with, that, as we mentioned before, like short motifs. It's mostly like, you know, it's it's action music, or it's, or even when it's, it's self-reflexive, such as in Aria, it's still like, you can see that it's constructed in a way that you need to deliver the word more than the long, you know, the long phrases, the long kind of bel canto that even Callas was, will be identified with. But she was so intelligent to, you know, to understand that Cherubini was more about the word, more about the delivery. At the, at the time, like the the soprano who interpreted Mede for the first time, Julian Angelique Chiot, we don't know much about her. She basically she was the uh, first singer for most of the opera by Cherubini. Of course, we don't know what she sounded like, but like in general, the the what the critic were thinking about 
Um, Jason was Pierre Gavo, who was in hot country. The hot country was the mm -hmm. typical, like, you know, French, very high, like, register. Um, and so the French had this kind of, like, extremely nasal uh, approach to the tenor voice, which certainly did not sound like uh, John Vickers, who right. I think was an incredible Jason, extremely believable, because, because he was also, like Maria Callas, an extremely good actor and someone who, like, could go deep into the psychology of, his, of the characters. Um, but certainly from a vocal point of view, uh, that kind of like even sort of like dark voice was mm -hmm. certainly not what the people in Paris was listening to. But again, like it's not like we're in Paris, so we can we can do whatever we want. What is your favorite part of Medea? Oh, the third act, like third act okay. of Medea. The final is, scene. For me, it's the yeah, final it's scene. Basically, it's the final, which is basically the final scene, but it's right. very short. <clears throat> like act three of Medea is almost entirely written by Cherubini because there's basically no space for recitatives. He devised almost the entire arch of Act 3, which amounts to, the, you know, the obvious, like, uh, most important part of the action, which is, you know, Medea killing first uh, in Italian, Glauce in, in French's Dirs, um, and then, of course, her, her children. Mm, but the way it's constructed, it comes so, like, um, slowly constructing tension, slowly building tension, of course. And the duets, the and the concertato finale, and especially the final scene, is just something that it's clear that it's a part that it's written for someone who like has the stage in her hands. Um, and even like you know the the libretto with the, all of the description of what the character is supposed to do, it's quite detailed and like quite theatrical. The way like she uh, takes the flame and then she just like uh, flows it in the air, and then like with she brings the the knife into her hands and she show it to Jason for the final, you know, her final last words. And then, you know, um, you know, they're there, they're in the music. You can hear in a way Medea rushing back and forth uh the stage, always though, with that kind of like tragic um um you know nobility that is uh, appropriate for a Cherubini opera. You are amazing. Thanks for taking time to really talk about this. Your your expertise and your knowledge just really shine through in so many ways. And that this was a significantly greater than I was uh, even hoping it would be. And I knew it would be good. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, it was a pleasure. Dr. Carlo Lanfossi, a research fellow at the University of Milan. He received his PhD in musicology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's currently working in the Ricordi Historic Archives and is an active music journalist for Radio Popolare. Well, speaking of Ricordi, the legendary music publishing company had been in the recording business they were the company that originally recorded Maria Callas as Medea. Well, Recordi has just issued a deluxe remastering of the Callas studio recording with new essays about the soprano and the recording process, ample pictures from the recording sessions, and a lot more. You can find out more information at archivioricordi.com. That's archivioricordi.com. Speaking of Maria Callas, our final segment of this inaugural podcast for Front Row Center Let's talk about the American Greek diva and her impact on the role of Medea with music critic, writer, and lecturer, David Shengold. There are some opera roles that are particularly defined with one singer's interpretation. Kurt Moll as Baron Ox, Renato Scotto as Chocho San, Frederica von Stada as Carubino, and you know, so many others we could name. In several of these roles, these mythical interpretations tend to be aligned with the era in which those singers performed as new champions of those roles emerge. Well, 
Carobini's Medea, though, is a little different. I'm so happy to welcome critic and lecturer David Shengold to this inaugural podcast of Front Row Center. Hi, David. Thanks for being here. Thank you. When it comes to the role of Medea, you know, there have been other famous sopranos who have tackled the role over the years, but there's one singer, and everyone else is compared to that singer, even though, you know, very few of us who attend opera today ever saw her perform live. David, who do you think of when mentioning the opera Medea? Well, definitely one thinks of Maria Callas. She definitely put Medea on the map. She was the one that revived that. Uh, nobody thought seriously of doing it. Maria Callas, you know, legendary for her technical and theatrical prowess. And as you mentioned, she single-handedly revived this opera in the Franz Lachner edition. But what qualities, even life experience, did Callas bring to Medea that no one else could? Well, people often forget that there is a Germanic component in that score. It's, you know, it's a French opera in 1797, but as it was re-edited, you know, in the 1850s, Lochner was a student of Schubert. He was very familiar with Beethoven. Callas was able to command both the bel canto, which she was trained in from a teenager, but also she had been, people forget this, done a lot of German music. One of her first roles was... Fidelia was Leonora, which she did in Greek, but she did other things too. And she was known as a Wagner singer before she made her big, splashy bel canto debut in Italy, which was I Puritani in 1949. She was actually, at the time, she was singing the Valkyria Brunhilde, completely different vocal requirements. So she was used to that kind of repertory. And I think that helps in this piece because it's certainly not classic bel canto. And there's this whole element of the accompanied recits, as you know, in this version, that she's amazing in. I, I also would suggest that some of the people that have also, as you said, been okay or fine in the role, like Leonie Riesenek and Inga Bork and Anya Celia, Gwyneth Jones, all of them we associate mainly with the Germanic repertory, they didn't make the complete success of it that Callas clearly did from, fortunately, we have both a studio and several live recordings and also the photographs and critical accounts. Well, you know, we are lucky because from broadcast recordings of whatnot, we're able to hear her grow and change in the role over, over several years. We get to hear like her journey in this role, but there's always seems to be some maybe external influence that adds to her interpretation. Well, things were going on in her life and in her career uh, that I think augmented. Medea is very much an outsider, and I think that's that's one thing that needs to be stressed about Callas. She must always have felt like an outsider. Callas was, of course, a native New Yorker, and she grew up with foreign parents who were not native speakers of English, uh, which is a very difficult thing, I know, from my father's experience. And she eventually moved back to Greece, where she was the American girl. She, she was different from everybody. And uh, I think that enters into it. When, you know, she made her career starting in 1947 in Italy, but she was always an other. And that's who Medea is. And when you read accounts of Kala, say, there's a book by uh, Rasponi called The Last Prima Donnas, which is full of all kinds of gossip, but also very interesting observations. 
all of the older Italian prima donnas referred to her as La Greca, the Greek. She wasn't one of them. And they didn't accept her. And she brought something alien and then was able to succeed on her own terms. So I think Collis's outsider is one element of this. What you talk about, what influenced her performances. And and one of those influences was just what was happening in her life, too. And when she was performing Medea in Dallas, she learned that she had been fired from the Met the night before. Yes, it's clear from that, which you can hear that performance on CD and YouTube, that she was proving something to Rudolph Bing at the Metropolitan and to all who listened that Dallas valued her. The Dallas company was basically founded to promote Kalas and they had could give her relatively unlimited resources and attention and create new productions around her. And the Met had never, never done that. Bing was talking about doing a Macbeth for her, but otherwise she was being offered an, a production of Traviata, which had been created by her rival, Renata Tebaldi, and she called it that lousy Traviata. She wasn't interested in that. And, you know, she made her debut in a very threadbare Norma and an ancient Tosca. That was not what she was used to. Collis didn't do a lot of performances of any role. Tosca may be up there, and she did a lot of Normas. Some of the roles, you know, that we can hear her in, she barely ever performed on, on stage, uh, you know, would do three times. Uh, Medea, there were more pr- productions than that. But as you say, each of them marked a special stage. The, we, we have the first one from Florence in 1953 with Vittorio Gui. And even there, she's, she's really into it. That was the, apparently the run in which she decided that she needed to lose weight. She was a very large woman before that. And she felt in order to live up to what other characters said about her, but also just to execute what directors were asking of her, that she really needed to slim down. And that's one of the great mysteries. How did she do it? But for a while after that, she maintained the vocal prowess that allowed her to execute what Carabini was asking for, scales and accuracy and the command both on the bottom and the top and you can hear the development and you know Collis of course we associate with the expression she gave to to words particularly in Italian each time it gets better Scala actually was so impressed by the May 1953 production in Florence that they changed their schedule and opened their season with her so every time she seemed to hit something new And with Dallas, as you say, she clearly was out to prove the world just who she was. Yo son Medea, as the character says again and again. And she sure is from start to finish. She also had a terrific cast. Teresa Baganza was in the Dallas cast. John Vickers, a legendary Jason because of the performances he did with Callos, also in the cast. It's interesting because uh, Baganza spoke really eloquently about how lovely Callis was, but when the recording was being done for EMI, uh, Renato Scotto had um, other memories, shall we say? Well, that came later after a lot of conflict between Callis's fans and Scotto doing her repertory. Vickers had actually done Jason Jassoni before in concert, but uh, she was impressed by Vickers and brought, I guess, asked for him in Dallas 
And they also did the roles together in uh, Covent, Covent Garden. Berganza was all of 25 then. You know, she had just made her debut a year before in X. And she said she Collis was wanted to make sure that everything went well for her. She engineered it so that always Berganza won a huge ovation for her single aria uh, as Neres. She thought very highly of her. With the Scotto thing, it's uh, it's partly the circumstances. Right. It was a Scala recording. It's not quite as incendiary as the live ones, but it's very good. And so it's um, Mirto Piki, Giuseppe Modesti, the bass, who's a very good singer, and Scotto. And she recognized just how good a singer the young Scotto was, who was, I think, 23, 24 at most. They apparently had never met when she arrived at the sessions to re- record the Medea. But then when uh, Tullio Serafin, who was one of Collis's great mentors, suggested that they need to make some cuts and would either eliminate or shorten one of Medea's several arias, she said, if you have to cut something, you have to cut Glauche's aria, not mine. And Glauche has only one aria and the only chance to shine. Scotto did get to record it. Uh, she's very good in it, but you, you need the aria to make an impact. Anyway, so that, I think that kind of adds to the legend of the impossible Callas. I, w- I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, Callas's otherness, in that Medea is almost like this alien, this foreigner, but we think of someone like that as having very special qualities, being so different from us and who they are, not just where they come from. And I, I was thinking about Callas as a young student, there, there are all these reports and mentions of, uh, in various biographies, of what a voracious young singer and, once, and student she was, sitting in on other voice students' lessons, coming to rehearsals that she hadn't been called to, just trying to absorb anything she could to become the best musician she could possibly be. I wonder if that behavior seems strange to her fellow students or colleagues when she started her career. No, I think that's an important point. There are accounts of her by fellow students and rival sopranos of her Athens days. And uh, people made fun of her, partly because she was an, you know, an overweight teenager. She started singing professionally 15 or But she was always there and very hardworking. And they came to realize she was extremely talented. She was also not her mother's favorite. There was a pretty older daughter and, uh, you know, I think she needed to prove herself. This was an arena at which she could excel, at least vocally. And eventually she became extremely beautiful woman. But there's also the fact that she was nearsighted. She had very bad eyesight. You know, so Collis would study and study and study and study because she couldn't always see the conductor or the prompter. She needed to know everything in her head. And that's part of, I think, what makes her such an extraordinary musician. Maria Callas is very much a specter casting her shadow over this role. And today there are at least two notable sopranos who now have Medea in their active repertoire. Of course, Sonia Ravanovsky, who's just doing it in New York, but also Sonia Yoncheva, not to mention any of the sopranos who are covering the role at the Met and elsewhere. But do you know, do you, do you think we're at a point where this specter of Callas, the shadow that she that she projects, will wash away as new generations of opera lovers celebrate new interpreters of the role? 
I think so. I don't think people are going to throw away the audio souvenir we have of her. Uh, I certainly think it's a, a very fine choice for Sandra Radvanovsky at this point in her career. She's had all kinds of technical experience and she's become a very passionate interpreter and declaims with the best of them. I think I think what I like about Sandra doing this role is that she's really laid this foundation vocally and built up her voice, technique, stamina, theatrical style, starting in roles like the fifth maid in Electra. I, I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, what, what what a voice, you know? But then she also worked through Mozart, Gutruna in Gotodemarung, Roxanne in Cyrano, and then, you know, this long line of wonderful, wonderful Verdi and Belcanto heroines. Donna Anna and Rosalinda yeah. and Flatermouth actually was really good. So, yeah, I think she has that different foundation. And we've seen in things like Roberto Devera that she uh, really can bring home a text. She has what they call a voce del teatro, a theatrical voice, which you know, just has a, a great impact on the listener. So the specter of Callus. I think it's a natural link that people are going to continue making. But uh, I think as perhaps as the work gets more performed, it won't be the first, very first thing people think of. David, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Maria Callas and Medea. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure. Critic and lecturer David Shengold resides in New York City. He regularly writes for Opera News, Opera, Opera Magazine, Opera Welt, and many other publications. He's taught courses on opera and literature at Williams, Mount Holyoke, and Oberlin Colleges. He has done program essays for companies including the Metropolitan Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, Washington National Opera, Royal Opera House Covent Garden, and the Wexford and Glyndebourne Festivals. Many thanks to David Shengold, Carlo Lanfossi, Laura Duval, and Grace Ledbetter for sharing their time and talents and expertise on this inaugural podcast of Front Row Center. Special thanks, too, to Stephen Trigar and the folks at Alexandrian Media for helping with this podcast. Also to Maria Alonso Cassell, Sierra Cervantes, Al Hunter, Donald Johnson, Karen Major, Rita Messina, and Susan Messina, the front of house usher team at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia for providing their voices for the intro. I'm looking forward to exploring more operas with you. Some of the operas we'll explore in the next few episodes include Verdi's La Traviata, specifically a look at faith and spirituality in Aida, and there are a couple of newer operas I'm trying to uh, plug in here as well. Speaking of which, if you are in the opera industry and would like your upcoming production featured on Front Row Center, please reach out to me at mike at michaeljbolton.com to see if we can collaborate. And speaking of lectures, I'll be giving a lecture on Benjamin Britten's masterpiece, Peter Grimes, on Wednesday, October 26th for the Metropolitan Opera Guild. You can find out more information or buy tickets at metguild.org. Meanwhile, look out for other podcasts brought to you by Alexandrian Media, including The Composer Chronicles and Cultured, but not really. Visit alexandrianmedia.org. If you have questions or comments, email me at mike at michaeljbolton.com. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at thunderbolton68. I hope you've enjoyed your view, Front Row Center. This is Mike Bolton, and we will see you next time.
That was an Alexandrian Media podcast. <laughs>